Well, good morning again. My name is Sean, I'm the lead pastor here, and we're going to continue our trek through the Old Testament prophet of Malachi. Today's passage can be found for you on page 10 in your order of worship there in the ESV translation. And as our children are leaving, for those children that are staying, uh, your special version is on page 11 for you guys. And if you'd like to turn there in your, your own Bible or the Bible there in front of you in the chair, it's found on page 754 in that Bible. And if you find yourself not having a Bible at home, would you please take that one with you as our gift? We'd love for you to take that with you. So to begin this text, as you're turning there, I want to take us to a, a different time and a, and a different place. I want to take us back to 1981, to Laramie, Wyoming. And the question before six-year-old Sean was this, was, do you trust me? See, I had thrown the toy up on the roof. My tall father had lifted me up onto the roof. I had thrown the toy back down, and now I had to get back down by jumping into my dad's arms. And I'd watched enough cartoons at that point in my life to know that if you don't know about gravity, you just get to walk straight out and nothing happens. But once you know about it, you fall. And so I knew about gravity, and so I was scared. And my dad looks at me, and he goes, have I ever dropped you? And I jumped. I don't remember the rest of that day. I think he caught me. I'm not sure. Um, Just kidding. That's a similar situation to what we find ourselves here in this text today. God is looking at his people and he's going, do you trust me? Will you take this leap of faith or you continue to live in this way that shows you do not trust me? So with that background, would you please turn with me now, page 10 in your order of worship, as we look together at Malachi chapter 3, verses 6 through 12. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, How shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Now this is God's word. Let's pray together. Now gracious God and heavenly Father, Lord, as we come before your word today, we once again ask that you would do your work of challenging us, of giving us truth where we need it, showing us our great need of you, showing us your great grace in the gospel and the beauty of Jesus as he fulfills our hearts. Father, would you build us up today by your word? We ask that you would do this, Father, by your spirit in Jesus' name, amen. So, so far in Malachi, we have seen that God's people have been fearless before him. And that sounds like a compliment, but it's not. He starts off Malachi chapter 1, verse 6, asking the question, where is my fear? Because these fearless worshipers are bringing before him 
unclean, unacceptable sacrifices and thinking it's no big deal. These fearless priests are then looking at this roadkill and saying, yeah, that's good enough, that'll work. And they're accepting it as worship unto God. And God himself comes and says, no, I do not accept that. In their view, these recovering Babylonians were thinking, well, because our God had been defeated by the Babylonian God, that's why we were taken away. And so our God is small and provincial, and he just needs to deal with what we have available for him. He's not this big, expansive, big G. He's a little G. He's been defeated, and he should be happy with what we give him. In response, God comes. He rebukes them. And then he starts to bring and point out these different curses of the covenant. Things he promised to do are happening to them in this ancient covenant. From the very beginning, he rescued them out of the land of Egypt. He gave them this land of Israel, and he entered into an agreement with them that if you'll do these things, I will bless you. And if you don't do these things, I will curse you. And so he's doing exactly what he said he would do. Their drought, their economic hardships, the overall difficulty of their life is a direct consequence of their lack of any fear of God. They look at the nations around them doing better in their mind, and so they ask, last week we saw, where is the God of justice? And he answers with a promise that he himself will come in justice. But first, in mercy, he will send someone else to prepare them for this justice so they're not destroyed. I love that. In response to their complaint for justice, he sends mercy. And we're still in the context of his answering that question. Where is the God of justice? He's told them what he's going to do in the future. Now he talks about them directly while they're in this situation. So he's still answering the question, where is the God of justice? And that gets us to our theme for today. We see his answer. It's this, that an uncompromising God dares his compromising people to trust him. So it starts off with a daring God. In the midst of their complaining for a God of justice, he reminds them of who he is. He reminds them of while they are still around. They're around because of his faithfulness. God is unchangeable and steady, he says. He says, I do not change. And we don't really value that in our culture that much, do we? We want flexible. We want easygoing. We want palatable, right? But over and over and over in the Scriptures, God reveals that He is totally inflexible when it comes to sin, when it comes to His law, and when it comes to His grace. And we need that. We need Him to be unchangeably faithful to His covenant to have grace on sinners like us because we're utterly changeable, aren't we? We need to rest in His being unchangeable. If the people at this time are not enjoying His blessings of the covenant, the reason is not God's unfaithfulness. The reason is their unfaithfulness. He is being completely faithful to what He has said He would do. He's always faithful. And so to remind them of their peril, He refers to them as children of Jacob. We just kind of read past that, but this is not a compliment. This is, Jacob is like Bruno. We don't talk about Jacob. Okay? He's like that guy in the background in our family. You know, we don't really talk about him that much. He's deceitful. He's dishonest. And God comes and says, you're being just like that patriarch, the lying thief. But even in the midst of them being like that, God does not cease to be their God. 
even when his people don't act like they're his. Don't you love that? He does not cease to be their God, even when they cease to act like they are his. See, the question at this point is, would these hardships, would the stuff happening all around that is making it so difficult, would this harden their hearts to God further, or would it lead them, bring them to repentance? Because we see what the problem is in verse 7. They can't keep a commitment. They constantly, from the very beginning, have broken God's law. They just can't do it. Boys and girls who are still here, I want you to look with me at the first couple verses here on page 11. We'll look at at verses 6 and 7 there. Here's how I put it for you. It says this, says, I, God, will not change my mind about loving you, even though you do not love me back. From the very beginning, you have not listened to me at all. Come back to me, and I will come back to you. Boys and girls, you ever been in a fight with a friend? Maybe your brother, maybe your sister, and they wronged you, and you know you're in the right and they're in the wrong. You know it. Are you the one who goes to them to, to try to fix it? Or do you sit back and wait for, no, you wronged me. Come on, let's fix this. You know you're at fault. You did it. God doesn't do that to us, boys and girls. You see that here? God is the one who's wronged, and he goes to his people and says, come back to me. What is wrong with you? I will come back to you. Come back to me. See, in mercy, God calls them to repentance, and they balk. They don't see their sin. God has to tell them of their evil because there's no good news without first seeing the bad news that we're stuck in. This is why, by the way, that we do the confession of sin the way that we do. We, we purposely read these outlines. And you may, you may have noticed, Mike and I purposely wordsmith them, so they're actually a little hard to say, so your brain is engaged. So you don't just mindlessly say them, like, wait, that's a weird phrase. Let's say, let's say it that way. And then, especially Marty, he's really good at this. The rest of us are trying to catch up to him. He is so good about, we get this long, awkward pause, Right? And by the time you're getting really uncomfortable, he keeps going, right? Because we want you to have these broad themes of repentance, and then we want time for the Holy Spirit to come to each and every one of us and convict us of our sin, like remind us of our sin so we can remember particulars and repent of those. Our doctrinal standards are called the Westminster Standards, and one of them is called the Westminster Confession of Faith. And in there, talking about repentance, it has this beautiful phrase. It says, we need to repent of our particular sins particularly. Isn't that great? We need to repent of our particular sins, particularly. Like you need to actually get in there and own them and say them and get to them. And so we give you that opportunity every Sunday in public worship to really get there and particularly repent of our sins. Because we don't see the good news as good as it really is until we recognize the bad news. We don't see, just like they, they don't see that our daring God has answered their challenge with a promise to meet them in their unfaithfulness with his faithfulness. It's because they don't see it, they answer his challenge by daring him, they daring God. The end of verse 7, they look back at him and say, well, how can we return? How should we return? You're supposed to read this like they're petulant children going, uh-uh, how have we done that? See, they don't see it. So God puts it right in their face. And before we look at it, I want to remind you, the book of Malachi is organized around these several instances where God says, you have done this. And his people answer him back with a, what? How have we done that? And the whole thing is organized around this. In fact, it's supposed to be a very abrupt, kind of like a, whatever. How have we done that, God? We don't see that. Who do you think you are? You don't get to challenge us. 
And we see that in verse 8. Look with me at verse 8 where he comes to tell them what's going on. He says, will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and your contributions. See, God says, you haven't returned to me. You haven't repented to me because you're still robbing me. You may be saying the fluffy words of repentance, but your actions show you ain't there yet. And how specifically in tithes, in contributions or offerings? See, what's going on here is out of fear of the unknown, they withhold because they don't trust God. Because when you don't fear God, you fear everything else. Okay, so what's going on here? Tithe, it's the Hebrew word for tenth. Basically, a tenth of all the produce was considered holy unto the Lord, according to Leviticus uh, 23.30. This, this part that was set aside as holy, it was considered, it was set apart as praise unto God himself for the good land. That's Deuteronomy 8.10. And note, it's about the produce of the land. It's tied to the produce of the land. This isn't really an issue to deal with cash money. That's somewhere else. But here it's the land. So the way it worked is, let's just say hypothetically, that the Lord blessed your flocks that year and your flocks, you had nine new baby goats in your little flock. You're so excited. That's good stuff. Guess how much you tithed? None. If you had 11 baby goats, guess how much you tithed? One. If you had 19 baby goats, guess how much you tithed? One. It was about that land. The Lord gave you 10,000 bushels of wheat that year. You gave 1,000 bushels of wheat out of gratitude to the Lord. Deuteronomy chapter 14, if you want to look this up later, verses 22 through 29 is a really good passage in the Old Testament about tithes and offerings. It lays out the tithe as this huge community celebration where they feasted on their own tithes that they brought to the feast. That they would come together as a family and they would feast. They would include the priests because the priests had no land. The priests couldn't support themselves, so this is how they ate. It also instructs that the tithes were to be collected and stored for the poor. They were to be collected and stored for the immigrants. That's in the text in Deuteronomy 14. And there's this really interesting aspect in Deuteronomy 14 where it says, if you live a, fa- a long way off, what you need to do, this is all in the text, you can look it up, you need to sell that stuff, bring the cash with you to Jerusalem, and then it doesn't say, and then give 10% of the cash. It says, no, you need to buy the animals and the produce there and have your feast. Because it was about the feasting, the rejoicing that God has blessed us again on his land. It was an obligation. This is a thou shalt. And it was from the produce of the land. They were to give this tenth unto the Lord in celebration. On top of that is offerings. These were additional free will gifts that you wanted to give. A good example would be, let's go back to our case of you had 19 new baby goats. You're obligated to give one, but out of a free will offering, you'd give two to make it closer to the full 10% because you wanted to out of an act of worship. And those went back to the work and worship of God. And those, those offerings oftentimes were cash money. I'm sure you appreciate that historical narrative. You're all very excited. The question you're all asking right now, I know, is, is tithing a Christian obligation? We'll come back to that. Here's what I want you to notice, that it's about stewardship 
They didn't own the land, nor did they own its produce. And so if they withheld it from its rightful owner, they were robbers. They were thieves, and God calls them on it. They understood stewardship in a way that we really don't. Taxation is very similar, but you can actually look these up. Archaeologists have found these. Ancient Persia and ancient Babylon were excellent record keepers. You can read translations of these things. The treaty with Persia that they were a vassal under, roughly, let me give you the gist of it, said this. I, the emperor of Persia, now own Israel. It's mine. I let you live there by my good graces. You will give me the produce of my land or I'll send in the army and kill your friends and family to remind you of my love. Okay, that's what it said. They knew that. They understood that. And so they knew what stewardship of someone else's land meant. And they basically said, we are afraid of the emperor of Persia, but this petty little God who was defeated by Babylon, eh, not so much. He's not that scary. We don't need to do what he says. And God says, you're robbing me. And we're not just robbing God. They were robbing the poor. They were robbing the immigrants, the sojourners in their land. They were robbing the priests. Tithes and offerings were the primarily way that the priests were supported. The priests, don't think just of like a pastor like you're thinking right now. Think more like take my job and combine it with like a, a butcher and someone who works the land because their job was intense Lots of physical labor, animal sacrifices, dragging things on off the altar. They weren't even allowed to work a full career because it wore them out so quickly. They were busy all the time. It wasn't some cushy white-collar job. They did not have time to produce anything for themselves, nor were they allowed to have any land as a family. So they were completely dependent upon the community to bring tithes and offerings. And so by withholding these things, what the community is saying is that we don't value what you do. What you do is not important. These mediators of the covenant, the people who stood between God and the people doing the things of worship to bring God's favor and avoid God's curse, they said, we don't care. We don't fear this little God. We don't care about his priests. You're not that important to us. Our little provincial God is not that big of a deal to really make a big deal about this tithing stuff. John Calvin, a 16th century pastor, he calls this, he says, openly sacrilegious to avoid supporting the priests like this. And here's what makes it really interesting, as if you've been paying attention these first three chapters. These are terrible priests. They are so bad at their job. God has called them out as being terrible, and yet he still calls out his people for not supporting them because it's not about them, it's about their role and what they represent. They are the mediators, and so what the people are saying is we don't need mediation to this little providential God, this little provincial, sorry, God. We got this. In other words, they were robbing God of glory. It's not about the money. See, and based on that, now we understand the big deal. And verse 9 makes way more sense. God has cursed them because they're robbing him of his glory. All the socioeconomic hardships in the community that they're facing that has caused them to complain to God and doubt his goodness and doubt his justice, it's actually a result of their robbing God of his glory. Their only hope lies in repentance in recognizing the unchangeable faithfulness of his covenant. 
See, an uncompromising God, he dares his compromising people to trust him. They were daring God by robbing him. But in his mercy, God comes and he reverses it. And we see now God daring. Look with me at verse 10. God says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there's no more need. So God says, try me, bring it, bring the full tithe. They were bringing in only part, apparently. Perhaps they used the poor economic conditions to say, well, I can't really afford to do it, so I'll just reduce my givings because the economy's hard. And then he says, food in my house. Is God hungry? Did he get up in the middle of the night to get a snack and go to the temple storehouse and it was empty, so he's, he's you know, a little miffed? No, God wasn't hungry, but the priests were. The storehouse here, basically we could call it the pantry in the temple. It's where the priests went to get their food. It's empty. And God says, fill it up and see if I will not return that to you. God is concerned here with the worldly needs of the priests, of the bad priests. See, these priests, if you think about this, they're more prone to accept these bad sacrifices when they're hungry because they got to cut off a chunk of the sacrifices to eat, like that day. And so like, well, it's roadkill, but it's better than no kill. I'm hungry. Okay, we'll take it. Sure, God accepts this. I'll take it. In tough times, people didn't bring food to God's house. In tough economics time, it's time to hoard, right? It's not time to spend. You've got to hunker down. And the curses that they're living under are directly tied to this poor worship of God, which is tied directly to them not trusting God in bringing the offerings. And so God, in response to this, says, test me. Put me to the test. Prove me. We can even translate it, I dare you to trust me in this. He makes this corporate promise to his people, not an individual promise, corporate promise. I will bless your nation. I will fulfill the covenant blessings I promised. I'll do what I said if you will do what you said you'd do. He will bless the nation. Verse 10 is a metaphor for rain. Drought was a curse of the covenant. God's saying, I'll take you out of the curse column. I'll put you in the blessing column. Verse 11, when God would send locusts and other animals to destroy their crops, that's a curse. God says, I'll rebuke the devourer. I'll take that out of the curse. I'll put you in the blessing column. And then he says, I'll give you so much grain, so much fruit, so much grapes. You'll be swimming in wine and grain, more than they can imagine. And again, grain and fruit, the stuff of the land, they were supposed to tithe. So verse 10 and 11 are basically about those same specific tithes and offerings. Bring these things. Trust me. I dare you to see what I will do. He's daring them to trust them because an uncompromising God comes to a compromising people and dares them to trust him. So what do we do with this? We wrap this up. What do we do with this? Well, One thing you'll notice as you read through the Old Testament, especially the shorter prophets called the minor prophets, is they're constantly putting into materialistic terms the spiritual blessings that they knew somehow were coming. They didn't know about the gospel. They just knew that God promised he was going to do something amazing one day, someday. And so they're trying to put all these blessings into the mentality that they will understand, their people understand. So they they talk about big feasts and great land and fertile crops and, and, and blessing of 
of huge flocks. They're using what they know to try to understand and convey this unbelievable blessing that God has promised them. Verse 10 and 11 kind of hint at the future, but verse 12 lands in that future blessing. Look at me. He says, Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a delight, a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. So he says, If you will trust me, I will bless you. I will bless you so much that other nations will see it and call you blessed. Instead of you looking at the other nations and calling them blessed and going, where's the God of justice? They'll all look at you and go, we want that God. Israel will become a nation to be envied. See, the context of this whole passage is really about those specific covenant obligations and covenant curses and covenant blessings. Because God is dealing with his people as a nation, this agreement that they made. If they would fulfill those obligations, God would bless them. But the problem is the problem from the very beginning. Verse 7, they have never been able to do it. See, what's new about the new covenant, what we know by grace in the New Testament that they could only dream of is that in Jesus we have the grace of the fact that he is the newer and truer Israel. That Jesus has fulfilled all those covenant obligations that Israel could not. He's earned the promised blessings for his people. And then united to him, you and I, we, when we place our faith and trust in Jesus as he's offered in the gospel, we are united to him. And so the blessings that he earned become our blessings. And then we're shielded from the curses of the covenant under him because he absorbed those for us when he became a curse for us on the cross. So he takes the curse, we get his blessing. So Christians, don't read this and think, oh, I need to tithe to get a good life. No, you should read this as a Christian and say, oh, Jesus is my tithe. Jesus is your tithe. Here's what I mean by that. Paul speaks of money. He speaks of Jesus. He speaks of the gospel. I think he has Malachi 3 in the back of his mind as he's writing 2 Corinthians 8. I want to look at one verse, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. Paul says this about the gospel. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Oh, it just smells of Malachi 3 to me. Whereas they withheld this covenant obligation and therefore brought a curse, Jesus, the true Israel, gave his entire life to his Father. He held nothing back, even going all the way to the cross. Jesus is our tithe. And so now, our financial giving, our support of the work and worship of the Lord is never an obligation. It's a joyful delight. So, is tithing a Christian requirement? I told you I'd come back to it. There is no specific New Testament command for 10% to go to the church. 1 Corinthians 16 says that giving should be in accord with our income. 2 Corinthians 8, we just read part of it, says we need to excel in the grace of giving. At the same time, Scripture is a unit. Scripture is a unity. It tells the one story of God redeeming his people from the curse of the fall and bringing them to new life. And tithing clearly was an obligation for like the first two-thirds of that story. So it's a good guide for the rest of the story. And then 
it wasn't fully about money, and today it's not fully about money either. We Christians have the privilege to give of our treasure, to give of our talents, and to give of our time for the work and worship of the church. It's on your bulletin, but you know it takes 40 people to make the average Sunday morning work around here? 40 people showing up, helping out about five hours on a Sunday. Do you know how much that would cost for us to hire that out? Yeah, if you want to be purely accounting about it, it saves us a lot of money for people to volunteer their time. Or you could be theological about it, say these people are tithing their time on a Sunday morning. They're giving of their time on a Sunday morning for the work and worship of the church. It's bigger than just money. So, if you do not tithe and your conscience is clear, I don't mean seared because you've ignored it for years. I mean actually guilt-free, your conscience is clear. I don't have the authority to bind you where Scripture doesn't, so I won't. If you do not tithe and your conscience is not clear, you should probably try tithing and see if your conscience is cleared up from obeying. If you do tithe and your conscience is still not clear, you should probably give more in accordance with your income, according to 1 Corinthians 16. You know, Sycamore does that. I don't know if you guys knew this or not. Some of you do. Sycamore does more than tithe. Before Sycamore pays its staff, before Sycamore pays the electricity bill, Sycamore sends 20% to people doing stuff outside of this building. We want to do more. And that's just money. We send people doing, giving their time. We send people giving their talent. We have people serving on boards all across the community for places that could not afford them, but they get them because they tithe their talent. See, I hope you hear this, Christians, that we are under a more demanding obligation, actually. Because when it comes to giving, we follow our Lord who laid down his entire life for God's mission. He didn't just give 10% of himself on the cross. He gave it all. And united to him, we too are called to offer back our entire lives unto the Lord. For you non-Christians here today, I hope you've heard throughout this and behind this that God doesn't want your money. He wants you. That Jesus laid aside his glory, his riches, to rescue you because he found you that valuable. If you're intrigued, or if you want to know more about that, reach out to the person who invited you here today and ask them. Or there's a QR code on here. You can scan and, get, and, and send me an email. I, we'll have coffee. Let's talk. I'd love to talk with you about Jesus. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this gracious reminder of how much you have given to us and how so very little you ask in return. But Lord, we also confess that as we rejoice in your grace, those of us who've placed our faith and trust in Jesus confess, admit even now, the love of money is so powerful. The fear of the unknown future is so profound that our greedy hearts want to hold on and not give. So Lord, we pray that not only would you bring us conviction of that, but Lord, would you help us to see again the beauty and delight of Jesus, our Savior. And that out of love for him, we would freely give over our whole selves to him who gave everything for us. Lord, we pray 
that you would make us givers who honor you. And we pray, Lord, that as Jesus has been shown to have given everything for sinners, that you would do your work of drawing sinners to yourself even now, that you would build your kingdom here. And we ask all this, Father, by your Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen.